Hey, I am Mustafa Sheree. Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome Nidhi Gulati one more time to Urbanistica podcast. And today we're going to talk about how plan and design gender equal cities. I'm honored to welcome you, Nidhi, to Urbanistica podcast one more time. Hey, and welcome. Thank you, Mustafa. It's really, uh, it's really good to be back. And thank you for inviting me back uh, to the podcast. I'm excited to talk about gender equal cities and just excited to be talking to a bigger audience um, than, you know, our one apartment and my husband, because we're all uh, trapped at home. <laughs> my pleasure. And I'm super happy that you give the time to record the episode, especially in this tough time. So thank you so much again. Of course. So how is it going with you? How do you feel? How are you? We are we are so privileged and lucky to have not personally felt the impact of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, our, our society and our world at large is feeling a lot of impact. New York City is feeling a lot of impact. People are getting sick. People are losing their lives. People are losing their loved ones. And especially people who um, are disadvantaged in so many ways. So, you know, people who work in social justice advocacy, already knew that this kind of uh, disproportionate impact would occur if a pandemic were to happen. And it's kind of, you know, a social justice advocate's biggest nightmare playing in front of their eyes um, as, as we do this. So the, the world is hurting on so many levels. And I think people like us are feeling kind of on the sidelines and helpless to not be able to do much. Um, and also realizing our privilege to not be personally impacted. So lots of things going on. Yeah, yeah. And how is it going with, the, with work, daily life? Is everything fine? Work is okay. I think again, we're we're privileged to have moved all of our work home. Um, you know, bring our laptops and whatnot, and continue to do the work in whatever capacity possible. Um, but we are definitely thinking about future scenarios and future plans and the the new normal that we will be ushering into very soon. So so far, work's okay, and it has given us a moment of pause and reevaluation of of our mission, of our center, um, which which is. Um, a important thing to do in a time like this. So how would you like to introduce yourself and please tell us what are you passionate about? Absolutely. So I like to be introduced as a social impact professional. Um, I am based in the United States. I'm a born and raised Indian, but I do identify more and more as a, as a global uh, citizen. I hold a senior director position at Project for Public Spaces. I am also a visiting faculty at Pratt Institute. Um, and that, that relationship I made there is important of like I'm, I'm a born and raised Indian I grew up in a very different kind of city um, in India and then you know worked as a professional um, in New Delhi and I, I don't drive I always got around cities with you know using public transportation and, and walking and kind of taking our our public spaces and the hustle bustle of the street for granted um, until I moved to the United States and I moved to a small college town in, in Texas where everybody drives and I didn't drive. And um, I found myself in a built environment that was very hostile to the way I lived my life. And I started to see my social life disappear, my sense of autonomy and independence disappear. Um, and I constantly became dependent on somebody who, who had a car. Um, so that really got me excited and interested and kind of mad, upset about you know, how our cities worked. Um, so that has continued to be a passion of mine. You know, cities around the world um, excite me a lot. Um, I'm a constant learner about, you know, the impact of the built form on the human behavior and then the other way around, the impact of human behavior on our built form. Um, and I'm also a constant 
learner in many ways um, about, you know, what impact our social, cultural, economic makeup has um, on urban planning and policymaking, race and class in, in particular. So I care a lot about how, you know, our, our entire selves and our constructs of what makes us who we are shows up every day in the way we design, govern and, um, you know, manage our, our cities. Yeah, what a big and interesting journey. It's been interesting, for sure, because I think um, when you start a career based on a personal experience, you know, when you when you start Im- getting impacted that deeply by the built environment, where I started losing my sense of self by where I was, it becomes very, very personal. So that is kind of a strength and a weakness of mine at the same time, that I'm personally invested in understanding how cities may be impacting people for better and for worse. Yeah. And you have been in so many different cities and going through different situations. Did you get to, to, to this point that you, you say to yourself, OK, now I know everything about cities. Now I have experienced everything and I know what's going to happen. I think I know a lot, but um, similar to what I was saying about I'm a constant learner about the impact of the built environment on people and the, you know, about race and class. I am a constant learner about cities. This a city is the most complex system that exists, um, a human-made system that exists in our world. And depending on, again, what country you're in, what culture you're in, and what climate, it differs so significantly that it's almost hard to say that we've, we've you know, understood all the cities that there are, that we know everything there is to know about a city. So I'm constantly learning, and then I enjoy that learning a lot, but I also at the same time feel that I know a lot personally because, you know, I, I have a mother, I have a mother-in-law, I have a sister, I have a niece, I have myself, my numerous friends who are constantly living their lives in cities. And me as an urban researcher, I'm constantly drawing some lessons and things out of those experiences that I'm having myself and that I'm seeing other people um, have depending on, you know, their sociocultural um, mix and history and depending on where they are in their lives and where they are on the globe. Yeah, exactly. So for you, it's a non-stop learning journey. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it's one of those things that continues to give back, but there's always more, more to learn and more to grasp. Yes. And this episode, we're going to talk about how do we create a gender equal city. So are you a feminist? Yes, I am. I do personally identify as a feminist, um, but I also think um, to the to the other point we were talking about earlier, uh, Masifa, we we need to be thinking about equality in every form in the way we design our cities. Um, and because we're so far from equality at this point, we really need to be looking at it from an equity lens, uh, equity lens that accounts for gender, race, and class. Um, and urban planners need to be thinking about all human beings and their needs as essential in the city. So we need to be thinking about all these different facets and we need to be thinking about elevating the needs of people who have been disadvantaged uh, by policy and implementation in the past. So my being a feminist is, I see as complementary to the way in which I think people ought to be looking at cities just across the board. Mm. Do you think that everyone should be a feminist? I think it's a personal choice. what people want to be passionate about and what people put, want to put their advocacy and personal weight behind is is, is a personal choice. Uh, but if anybody who's on the verge of like, should I, shouldn't I? Of course, I mean, I'm an advocate. I'd say, yes, you should be a feminist um, because advocating for the needs of one particular group um, in, in a society doesn't mean that you're anti something else. This is one of those states of mind that you're, you're, 
elevating the needs of one group without taking a negative stance against any other. Yeah. So, so far you, you, you don't hurt the other groups in the society. Uh, no, the, the idea in the way I see being a feminist is like, like, think about this. This shows up a lot in the conversations that we have. Let's say that everybody's needs in designing a city should be, should be considered at this level. You know, this is the hypothetical line. Everybody's voice should matter to this level. And then we are realizing that 50% of the world population, approximately, the female identifiers, their voices have not always been heard. Their needs have not always been met. So in order to, for us to get to an equal society, we first need to close this gap. We need to bring that up. So we need to really empower, put the thrust on the gap underneath here to really bring their voices and needs back up to a place where hopefully in the future we can get to um, an equal, gender equal society, a society that would work for everybody. And then we can stop check talking about gender, hopefully. But for now, the gap is created because of gender. And if we give all levels equal amount of love, then everybody elevates, but the gap mm. stays where it is. Mm. So in order for us to close the gap, it's important to talk about the population that hasn't always had their voice heard and their needs met. So for now, yes, I think we should be focusing on the needs of those whose voices have not always been heard. And for the purpose of today's conversation, we are talking about 50% of our world's population whose needs and voices have not always accounted, been accounted for equally. So we need to close that gap before we start talking about cities for all. Exactly. And thank you so much again for giving your time to inspire us. Yes, absolutely. To, to always be cognizant that there is a gap and we can't just be talking about cities for all because cities for all perpetuates the status quo. And we can't afford to do that or can't afford to continue doing that. Uh, Nidhi, how do you define gender equality? Uh, a gender equal city is a place that puts equal emphasis on the needs of all gender identities in its creation. So, and I want to say that we're really, we're far from it. So that every gender identity feels an equal sense of invitation, ownership, and comfort in the city that is then created. And speaking again, in particular uh, today, of the close to 50% of the population that identifies as female and their needs being met equally as their male identifying counterparts. So a city that works equally well for all gender identities and considers the needs and nuances of all those gender identities in its creation is what a gender equal city is. How much urban planners and architects can influence the society to be more equal? I think before we talk about how do we make the society more equal, we have to take a moment to, to talk about why isn't it equal? You know, why do we have an unequal society? And I would like to put a plug here for a book. There's this book called Invisible Women by uh, this woman called Carolyn Credo Perez. Um, I believe she's, she's based in, in London. Um, and she talks very extensively about the gender bias in, in data keeping, and then the gender bias in designing of products that we use to live our daily lives. And she gives a particular example of um, the way automobiles are designed and how most car manufacturers and designers kind of use the, 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 the typical male body, which, you know, again, in the Western world ends up being a, a heterosexual white male person. Um, with a you know, particular average height and so on and so forth, their body is what's used to create a, the design of an automobile. And then, which means that also all the safety measures that are put into an automobile consider 
the needs of that one particular body. And again, thinking about the US for a second here, it's a very car dependent society in general, where every adult is driving a car. And that means that 50% of the people sitting behind the wheel in an, wheel in an automobile are more susceptible to injuries than, um, than men. And then they're, you know, the way that they're able to reach the pedal, the way they're able to reach the, the, the wheel, all of those things are not being considered, which means a thing, an automobile, which can also be equated to like a machinery that can kill people, and you can be killed inside of those, is not designed to accommodate the needs of 50% of the population. So that is a really kind of that example stuck with me from that book and, you know, Carol Anston's several podcasts, and it stuck with me. And so it's important to think about that the way we're designing these products that we live our life in don't account for the needs of women, and that's what creates the inequity. Similarly, um, I remember when I was going to architecture school, wow, how many years ago now? <laughs> <laughs> several years ago. Um, and I remember the architectural standards always kind of would show the male body and, you know, the counter needs to be this high and this needs to be that high and whatever because of the male body. And women do show up in these manuals, but they show up in like design of the kitchen and more kind of the, the gender norms that have been enforced on us. So we're designing our buildings and the environments where we're living most of our lives. Now I'm living, you know, all my day in my apartment and realizing that we're designing these environments with particular gender roles in mind and constantly reinforcing those roles through the design. So who has been in charge of creating those manuals? Who has been in charge of creating urban planning standards? Like the people who've held that level of power have tended to be men. So because women were not in those positions, their needs were not being considered in the same way. And now that the role of the genders is constantly shifting and you know, women are not necessarily the ones in kitchens and, um, and so on and so forth, and women are driving cars, we need to think about how did we even get here? So we first need to acknowledge and understand why that inequity happened so that we can think about uh, addressing and again, think about closing that gap. Um, from that perspective, urban planners and architects can do a lot. You know, first and foremost, we should look, take a really, really close look at the manuals and guides that we follow and maybe consider doing a full 100% refresh with having um, women as equal participants in creating those manuals. So let's rewrite the norms by which we design our, our buildings and cities and let's give power to the people who haven't um, traditionally held power. And then once we've thought about you know, the, the power dynamic and who holds power, then let's think about how do we interpret those norms? Like you know, how do we read those manuals and how do we read those um, urban planning and architectural you know, standards that have been given to us and get women, more and more women involved in the, the interpretation of those manuals. So more females, uh, female in the architecture profession and you know, more females in the urban planning profession and all of that. And then, at the very sort of human scale level, several Western um, countries, again, have um, mandates to do community engagement prior to a project going into place. So thinking about women as your, you know, your, a, a population that you have to target and a population that you have to accommodate much more thoughtfully in your community engagement so that on a project by project basis, you get to hear the voices that always haven't always been heard and put the, put the onus and put the weight on the architects, planners and implementers themselves to make sure those voices are heard instead of saying, oh, we had a public meeting and women didn't show up. So it's somehow women's fault that they didn't show up. Instead, thinking more about 
how can we make sure that we hear women? How can we make sure that we hear their voices and blend it in by going to where they are and by meeting their level of access and their needs in those community engagement processes to ensure that we get to hear from them? So putting the onus on people who hold power instead of people who don't hold as much power currently in the situation. Yeah, and to, to listen to, to the focus group or to the to the women, some project, you know, there is a limited budget and so on. So my first question, do you think there's enough of books and data that tell us how women experience the city that, I mean, for a small project that they don't have enough money to talk to the women? I think there is enough existing data um, out there to point to the gap like enough data that shows you this is what is not working. And in order to make sure what is working, there are lots of ways in which we can get the information, you know, thinking about um, social media, you know, like any city in, in country now has social media and um, all genders hopefully are participating in those. So like reading much more deeply into everyday conversations to start to gauge um, some of the more unique cultural uh, and uh, sort of racial nuances of a particular place, you know, um, that is possible. So we can look at the existing um, stuff that's out there available to us through the World Wide Web and start to read a little bit more into it with that particular lens that we're looking for the unique needs and um, desires of, of this population. So we can do that. And where there is an existing budget, like let's say there is X number of dollars available to conduct a community workshop like that budget is already allocated. Start to get creative in how that community workshop can look different than what it has looked already. You know, instead of having a workshop where typically either, you know, men in their whatever ages show up, how can we change the definition of a workshop and retool it in the way that with the same amount of dollars and with the same budget, we can do it differently to maybe account for women's needs better. Whatever time of day are they available? If they're available virtually instead of being available in person, how can we reshape that budget and utilize it in a better way? So I, can't, I think there's enough data to point to where the gap is. There is enough information out on the World Wide Web so we can start learning a little bit more if we put that lens in. And then we can start to rethink our current budgets to utilize them better and start to rethink, you know, let's not be rigid about what it means to do community engagement, but instead be very flexible because we're trying to change something here, which means that our norms and our methods of spending um, those dollars have to change too. Yeah, but from what I understand, from what you're saying, so the, the main responsibility is on architects, urban planners, urban designers. I think responsibility also is on our elected leaders and people who make policy because policy is one of the most powerful things to change a city. And it's the most powerful thing to change in itself. Like, you know, it's really hard to talk to any policy advocate. It takes decades to change policy. So people who are um, really at kind of at the top of that pyramid of our decision makers, our leaders and our policy makers, they have to be on board too. And then architects and urban planners sit at that, the interpreter level. And they need to take a lot of responsibility and really grow into the power that we already do hold in creation of our cities in order to do something differently. So that's, I think, people with more power have more responsibility, and we have to kind of think about change at those levels too. Yes. And Nidhi, I'm super interested to, to get inspired and get much of your experience about community engagement. So because I'm also working a lot with workshops with the small kids, uh, young girls, and so on. So my question is, doing a workshop 
it's something, but listening to the people is something else. So how do we listen to, to the women? I think first and foremost, it's important to make the women comfortable in sharing. And I can't speak to the entire population of women around the world in saying what makes them comfortable. Um, but I think it's important to ask them what makes them comfortable. So let's first and foremost, what would make you more comfortable to share um, your needs and desires and all those things about your city? And once they tell you what those comfort levels are and what those nuances of comfort are to design a community engagement process that actually reflects that. So let's, let me give you an example. Um, let's say I am somebody who has an immigrant, English is my second language, and I don't feel comfortable standing up in front of a crowd and sharing, you know, in front of hundred people that, uh, you know, my street is not wide enough, my sidewalk is unsafe and whatever. Let's say I have, I just can't do that. That's not my level of comfort. I instead feel more comfortable if you let me write that out in my language and then you can interpret it and make sure it gets accounted for as, you know, any other kind of engagement that it holds the equal amount of weight. If I said that, that this is my preference, then the community engagement process has to respond. Then we have to move away from this, oh, we're all going to stand up here and present to you 100 people and you have to get up and tell us what's wrong with what we're doing. Not everybody feels comfortable in that sense. So let's understand from them what makes them feel comfortable and then design the process in a way that actually reflects the things that they've told you. And then it becomes much more, um, at least we've done what we could have to make sure that they will feel comfortable and they, they share um, what they think should really occur. Another example is, you know, in many communities, the role of childcare still does fall on women. You know, it's changing. Things are changing. We're in a different world than we were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, but for now, that role does fall on women a lot. So women often talk about, you know, the, something that we hear a lot is these, these community workshops happen in the evening. Uh, which is past my kids' bedtime. You know, there's no, there's nothing for um, the kids to do when I am participating in a workshop. Why don't you let my kid also participate in a workshop? And why don't, at the very least, you think about providing childcare so I can participate? So those kinds of things, they're valid concerns because if you're feeling um, that you can't fully participate and you know your your needs as a caregiver are not being met in these workshops then you feel like you're not desired there that your your input is not valuable which is why your needs are not accounted for these workshops so can the workshop happen in the daytime can there be a way in which we can engage the kids themselves and try to understand try to understand from them what they imagine their city look like or on a lower end, can we provide childcare for kids so they're they're busy and interacting so we can talk to their caregivers? Um, and can the workshop happen at a park or you know an, a, another location than what you have planned to better meet the needs that they have already outlined? So we all have opportunities, and in every you know in whatever subtle way we can start to account for these unique needs and comfort levels will be very very helpful to at least start to to change a little bit to close the gap just a little bit. Yeah. Um, to eventually be able to close it. Yeah, and uh, thinking about what's happening now with COVID-19, so we are almost in, in a, a completely fully digital world. So how much digital methods can we use now? I think it still it remains to be seen how much of it can we can we use. I personally feel that there's a different level of trust building that happens face to face when you're engaging people in person. Um, 
and that will probably never go away. But the digital world does provide an opportunity to engage more people than we have been able to, because more and more people now own digital devices and have access to, to internet and 3G and 4G and 5G and, and so on and so forth. So it does provide us an opportunity to go a little bit broader. Um, and you know, we've already started seeing that in some of the projects that my company is working on, where you know, the participation in citizen advisory bodies has gone up because now people don't have to stop their workday, find childcare for their, for their children and make a 30 minute drive to go to a meeting and sit there for like two hours. Because all of that, that commute and all of the other things have been taken out of the equation, people are able to log in from the comfort of their homes and participate in citizen advisory bodies. That is a good thing. It has allowed us to broaden the number of people that we're able to reach. But the depth of that engagement and the, the, the intimacy of that conversation and the level of comfort, it remains to be seen. Because like I said, I personally think that there is, there is a beauty and a level of comfort in having a conversation face-to-face. -face, and that just, it can't be achieved with a screen and with a device. So some, some depth and some intimacy is going away, but we're able to reach more people. So there is a balance. And I think it remains to be seen um, to what extent we'll be able to accommodate both of those things going forward. Yeah, I completely agree with you about the, the having dialogue face-to-face -face because it's something else than what you receive as an email or as a letter. And also, I'm focusing now so much about the, the conversation and the dialogue. So sometimes it feels very boring the conversation when an architect or urban planner is just asking the question as a policeman. Mm -hmm. So how important is it to have a, a normal conversation instead of like a question, answer, question, answer? Normal conversations are much more important. I think when you, when you put anything in a question format, then you are expecting the other person to give you an answer. It's the same thing as putting you know, things as problems and then looking for solutions. You, you, make too, you put too many expectations around what you're even looking for. Whereas if we were to have like simple conversations like this, you can pull out many more nuances from a simple conversation like that. And you can put the other person on ease that you're not required to give an answer. You're not required to come up with a solution. Just tell us what your needs are. Like, tell us what you're feeling. Tell us what you're going through. And through that, really tease out the solutions and answers. You know, qualitative research is an entire field right now. You know, there, there are people who are being trained. I got training in qualitative research. I have training in actually translating conversations and like putting themes and underlining and pulling solutions and answers out of that, but never asking the person you're having the conversation with to come up with an answer because that is too much, that's too much expectation. And then that creates that frame of mind that, oh, you're an architect asking me a question. You expect me to have the level of intelligence that architects do, the level of intelligence of design standards to give you an answer but the reality is most of us don't have that level of knowledge. And we're not, why, why would we? If we're not architects ourselves, why should we know the architectural lingo? So we have to have conversations much more at a human level and in words and languages that people understand and that normalize architecture instead of keeping it kind of this, this elite discipline that it has become over, yeah, over decades exactly. and centuries. Do, be, do you believe it's uh, an art, like an art of having conversation with other people Absolutely. that you don't know, you never met before? <laughs> Absolutely. And there are so many things to consider to not, you know, put your own biases on people, you know, put your own um, baggage on other people and to not make assumptions about people. It's most definitely an art to have a conversation that is as much free of bias and, um, 
you know, these these constructs that we bring with us, you know, because I, I come from a patriarchal society and, and I was raised in a particular way and I have my own value system. It's important to keep that value system out of a conversation and not kind of force it on another human being. And the same thing goes with biases. You know, we see somebody and based on how they look and how they dress, we make all these assumptions. And when having a conversation, it's really, it's difficult, but it's important to keep those assumptions to yourself and not force that on the other person. because who knows if they identify with those assumptions? Like, who knows what what your own identity and your own lived experience, what role did all of that play in you making that assumption? So it's it's most definitely an art. And I don't think we're ever done learning. We, we know much more about um, the diversity of social, cultural, racial experiences that, that exist out there. We know much more now than we did before. But I'm confident that, that we will learn a lot more of what you know the diversity of things is before we before we start to embrace that diversity. That's why I love city planning because it's again non-stop learning journey. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that's what makes cities so exciting, right? Uh, the most complex man-made system that's <laughs> out there in the world is is the city. Yeah, and Niti, can we assume that young girls experience the same as how the adults or women experience the city? Is there anything in common? There are, I think there are some things that stay with us and other things that change. Um, first, let's let's talk about how you know how women experience the city differently than men. You know, like let's talk about gender, exactly. gender yeah. first. And um, it's almost it's almost ironic that we have to in order to fill the gender the gap created by gender, we have to take a gendered approach to first fill that gap before we can get to gender neutrality and equality. So for now. It's, it has been the problem, and we have to continue talking about it to, to fill that fill that gap. Um, you know, depending on just just looking at our our biology, women have a very different body than men. You know, our, our chest structure, our pelvic structure, our, our, our bone structure, everything is different from men, and that body is what we are experiencing the world around us with. So when that that entity, that experiencing entity, changes the entire experience changes, you know? So women experience the world in a very different way than men. And I think the gender norms put on us by a society have a huge role to, to play in that as well. You know, growing up in Northern India, I felt a totally different level of ownership, entitlement, and invitation to the city than, than you know, some of my cousins who were male identifying than they did. Um, so I experienced it very differently. I always had to be much more vigilant. I always had to be much more careful, eyes open, ears open, um, than, than what, um, you know, my, uh, my male cousins were. When I was going to college, I lived in a dorm that had a curfew at nine o'clock or something. So in the city where I was going to college, one of my most formative experiences, I never experienced the evening and light, nightlife of that city. So 12 hours every day, I don't know what the city looks like because I was never there. The The male dorms did not have any curfew. They were open 24 hours because they were kind of expected and understood that they can take care of themselves. So the, our, our social, cultural, and societal norms have a huge impact on how we experience cities too. And age is something that impacts all genders, you know, from, from being a child, when you're experiencing the city, really using all your tactile and sensory forms, you know, you're smelling smells for the very first time, hearing sounds for the very first time, touching things for the very first time, your brain is constantly grasping. But when you grow up from that experience, when you grow up from being like five years old and six years old, then you're not constantly touching everything. You're experiencing it in much more using your 
your sight and your sense, your smell um, and your um, hearing capabilities much more than you were before um, and not relying as much on touch. So as we age, that, that experience changes and more so for women, you know, because when you, when a, a woman becomes a mother um, and now you have a part of your, your, your body, a part of you um, walking independently from you, then you're experiencing the city through two different eyes as, um, as a guardian and as, as a person yourself. So, you know, you're, you have your feelings and your experience attached to your child. Um, and then if you have a, a disability, if you're living with a disability, your experience is different because you're not autonomous anymore. You're reliant on a piece of machinery or something else to, to aid your experience. So depending on what, what, place in your life you are, um, whether you're with a child, without a child, with a grandchild, using a stroller uh, or using a wheelchair or using a walker, your experience continues to change. And that is that is true for, for all genders, as I said, um, So, which means that it's also true for women. Again, a group that hasn't been heard, their, their age nuances get missed um, in the entire conversation as well. So it changes, absolutely. Yeah. But is it possible for the architects, urban planners, and designers to fulfill the requirement of the different ages of the women? How should we think? Should we think to focus on how younger experience the public spaces are the city or the old adults women? I would say, as, as this is a personal value of mine, that we should prioritize the values of the most vulnerable populations in a particular community. And vulnerability can be defined in lots of different ways. You know, how much... Um, how much do you need the attention of another able-bodied adult um, or their assistance to live their, your full life? And I believe um, the World Health Organization kind of has a dependency index. At what age are you most dependent um, and at what age you're most independent? So the, the age at which you're most dependent also means that you're the most vulnerable. You're expecting the group that you're dependent upon to uphold your values, your desires, and to be your voice, which means you're very vulnerable yourself. So I would say that it's important to think about really young girls um, who are still in that very dependent age, and then the aging population where you're becoming dependent again. Um, so we have to find our priority audiences to really start to elevate their voices. We'll never be able to do, you know, across the board, equally give everybody the same amount of love, because I would say the logic, same up logic applies. If an able-bodied woman's values can already be heard and the more vulnerable have not traditionally been heard, let's close the gap. You know, the more vulnerable who haven't always been able to ha even have the voice, if they're learning to talk, little, really little girls, if you're learning to talk, you have, you're still finding your words, your voice has been heard, hasn't been heard. So let's start to bring, you know, close the gap there as well. The more the vulnerability, um, the less power that you've held, the more we should be focusing on that population right now. Yeah, and from your experience, can you give us some of urban planning and designs elements that we should consider when we work with city development? For instance, I can start with the lighting in the city and public spaces. In Sweden, it's it's a very, very big issue, especially some days we don't see the sun. And so light is very important, the artificial right. light. And in many public spaces that let's say architects or light designer use this this light with a spotlight you know that it's very strong in one spot but in surroundings very dark dark mm -hmm. so it's uh, causing a lot of problems so i would love to hear from you based on your experience what are the elements that we should really think about when it comes to designing a gender equal space right um so let's focus on public transportation um for for that perspective from a city systems perspective and also i think uh public transportation is a system we can look at at the systems level at the intermediate level and then at human scale um so at the systems level 
you know, um, this um, this company, this nonprofit called IPDP, which is a transportation nonprofit, um, does a lot of data gathering and, uh, you know, tabulizes that, that data, captures that data and writes publications. They have been looking at how women, caregiving women, um, do many more non-linear trips in their day than um, the breadwinning men in, in their families. Again, there are some, you know, gender biases in here too. And then there are some sort of gender constraints that in many parts of the world still um, exist, you know, so women being caregivers and men being um, the primary breadwinners in a, in a family. I have trouble and, you know, comments on the term breadwinner, but okay, let's just, let's just use the, um, yeah. the popular status quo language that's out there. So the, the women who are playing the role of a primary caregiver um, for the young in their family and for the older adults are doing many more non-linear trips. What that means is that they're not just going from home to work and work back. They're stopping to drop kids off at school. They're stopping to pick up groceries. They're you know picking up medication, blah, blah, blah. They're doing like seven different things before they finally get to, to point B. So it's not a simple A to B. However, many of our public transportation systems and many of our highway systems are created to make the A to B fast and direct. You know, we're going to have an express train that takes you from home to downtown Manhattan and then back to Queens. That's not what my journey is. That's not what, that's not what my needs are. And that's not how I want my system to be designed. I want to be able to quickly and conveniently make a stop at daycare make a stop at grocery store, make a stop at pharmacy before reaching work. And the same thing in the evening coming back. So those kinds of needs and desires need to be accounted for if we want women who are quickly and hopefully promisingly forming a large part of our workforce, if we want them to be equally efficient, we want to consider what their commute looks like. And we need to design at a systems level, a system that works for all genders equally. At the, at the human scale, you know, at the very, the scale of um, designing of a public transportation um, bus or a train car. I will, I will allude more to, again, my personal experience here too. I always feel very uncomfortable um, sitting in seats that make you look forward. And, you know, you're, you can't see the people who are sitting behind you. And that, in, in several instances for me, that created a sense of danger. You know, I don't know if somebody's hand could be reaching in front of me. And, um, you know, the fear of uh, sexual violence on public transit is very, very real in many parts of the world. So I don't feel comfortable sitting in, in, a, um, in a subway car where I can't see who's sitting behind me. Whereas if I have my back to the window of the subway car and I can see other people face to face and people standing, I feel like I have a much broader view of other people in the subway that makes me feel comfortable. Um, and then thinking about trains that don't allow between cars um, travel, you know, so that you can move from one car to another. To use industry lingo, it's called like open gangways where you can move from one subway car to another. Do we allow for that? If we, if, you know, women are, by the way, in many, many countries, especially in the United States, women make up more than 50% of subway riders. So their needs absolutely have to be met because we are like the dominant population riding uh, public transportation. So do we have the ability to get up from our subway car and move to a different car? Is that even allowed? Is that even possible in a safe manner? So those needs can be accounted for at that level. And then you get off the bus or you get off the train and you made a great point, Mustafa, about is there is there light um, at the at the subway stop? Can you safely go home from getting off the bus, getting off the train? Because the last two blocks that you um, that you have to walk to get home 
any kind of incident could occur that would make you very uncomfortable and potentially hesitant from taking that subway system the next day. I, I have been, um, I have faced sexual harassment on public transportation. It definitely used to, I, you know, and, and remember that I'm a very strong advocate for public transit now. There was a time in my life when I hated taking the bus and I really, really wanted to drive myself to, you know, my tuitions and my high school and whatnot. And um, it has an impact. So we can think about, again, from a system, from a, from a subway car bus and your last quarter mile journey home from that subway station. And are we thinking about uh, the vulnerabilities and needs of uh, a particular gender group um, in that regard? And all of these, the different details, this should be provided by women, right? When we listen. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And our, our policies and our manuals should reflect them. And our interpreters, our architects, urban planners, designers of transit systems should also include women. So we interpret it the right way. So we need, we need to change everything from the, from the top to the grassroots at every level. We have to make sure that uh, there is representation. Yeah. And how is it when it comes to public spaces? I remember when uh, we were chatting in, in January or February, you told me about when you were working in India and there was a fountain and how you and your friend use it. So women uh, experience the, the, a public space in a different way. So what are their needs in a public space? Um, again, I think there are lots of uh, social, cultural, economic, racial nuances to, to this conversation as well, because again, what makes me comfortable may not be what my, makes my other uh, female identifying friend comfortable. Yes, exactly, it exactly. Um, it, yeah, so, uh, you're the storyteller, so more it's based on your experience and culture. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, for, for sure. Um, so for me personally, you know, I've always, having lighting is an important part for me, you know, having safe access with lighting uh, to a public space is very important. So um, are there sidewalks available? Can I, can I carry my big side bag on my shoulder and be able to cross another person on a sidewalk is very important. If it's the evening, there's light on the sidewalk so I can get to that particular public space safely. When I get there, for me, it's very important to think about as easily as I was able to get in, can I exit that public space as easily also? If I felt uncomfortable, um, can I leave that public space as, as equally also? The number of kind of dark spots in a public space is, is very, it's critical, you know, because the more places where I feel like somebody could pull you in a corner and potentially take, a, take advantage of that situation or that time, the more those nooks and crannies in a public space, the less likely I am to spend more time there. So very open, visually connected, more eyes um, on the places is very important for me to feel comfortable in a particular public space. Are there enough places to sit? And for benches and seating, the same consideration as I was uh, making about public transportation and seats on public transportation, do I feel like there, there could be somebody behind me without me realizing? Or do I have a bench with a back potentially, you know, close to a wall. So I know that there's nobody behind me and I have a vantage point. Um, so I would encourage everybody to look into this theory of prospect and refuge and how that applies to women. So prospect being the ability to view a large area and refuge feeling safe and having like a bench with a back or, you know, sitting next to a wall. So you know that there's nobody behind you um, kind of situation is, is also very important. Having things to do, you know, things that kind of interest me are exciting to me. You know, if I like to um, get snacks when I'm in a public space, which I do like, I can, if I can have a cup of coffee and, and some street snacks, um, especially what we enjoyed in Delhi, the story that I told you last time, Mustafa, um, we really liked enjoying having snacks with friends. 
Are there snacks even available? Can I do some window shopping? Is there, are there shops that are selling women's goods? Um, is something else that excites me? Is, the, is there presence of other women in, um, in the retail and economic life of that particular space? Are there women running these shops? Are there w women um, you know, selling fruits and vegetables and snacks and whatnot? Are there other women who are being empowered um, as running the economy of the place is, is also very important. Restrooms, is there, you know, is there a restroom um, for, for suitable for, for ladies close to um, the public space? Is that restroom safe to access? Is that restroom well labeled? Um, and are there all the other safety security measures to make sure that that restroom is a safe place for me to be? Uh, for women who might be nursing, similar thing, are there facilities for them to nurse safely um, and in their, in their own comfort level as possible? So I can go on and on, but there's so many things that um, make a public space um, exciting and comfortable for women, but we have to focus on that, that level, of, level of comfort, comfort in access, comfort in staying, um, comfort in entering, comfort in exiting, and that comfort is a complex um, construct created by a lot of different things. And I could tell you that just like I was going right now. So the more opportunity we give women to share, the more we can learn about what it is that makes them comfortable and start to account for that in the design. They are not always expensive things, but they're mostly things that you know get ignored because people just don't know that these are mm -hmm. things that would make women comfortable. Yeah, I also believe that designing a livable public space, it's not so complicated and doesn't mean so much solution. It's not rocket science. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, basically, as you told it, like, it's not really complicated. It's very simple. And sometimes it's not cost that much. It's about reallocating the, the money. It's not about costing more. It's sometimes it's just about, you know, if we have lighting, can we have the kind of lighting that would be helpful for women to feel safe instead of just architectural, visually pleasing, sculptural lighting? Like, can we do two things at the same time? Um, you know, so it's sometimes about reallocation and better allocation of the, of the money that is available to us than additional money. Yeah. And talking about the public spaces, so we have so many different public spaces now existing. So do you think we need also to go through them and re- design them somehow or just cities evolve and cities change that's just the norm has been always will be um and we have to think about every opportunity we get for changing something as an opportunity for doing it better you know because infrastructure um breaks down infrastructure deteriorates over time you know we we repave the streets here in the united states at, at a regular interval um and every time we're reinvesting in a particular public space is has to be looked at as an opportunity to undo some of the inequities of the past has to be looked at as an opportunity to create a more inclusive and environment uh, inviting place so we have to think about that because these are monies we are going to spend anyway we're going to repave the street we're going to fix the roof we're going to you know uh put grass back in the lawn that you know where the grass is now gone and all that so there's a there's a life cycle to everything in a city and every time we're in the new cycle we have to think about that as an opportunity to undo what was done wrong in the past. And that way we can start to change it. But at the same time, by allowing um, the users of the space to have some level of control and ownership in the stewardship and management, you know, like if I knew that I could bring my own chair and put it wherever in the park and have my own kind of experience, maybe I will. But in most instances, we have these long list of rules before going to a public space. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. Let's take some of those rules out. Let's let people do what they want to do to have 
a more um, kind of inviting and appropriate experience for their needs, and then maybe they will. So that would also help a little bit. Um, and then inviting the community to come in and help do certain things. Like if a particular public space has um, an art budget, let's say, like because I hear about that a lot in North America, that there is a public art budget associated with a public space, which means that an artist would come in and they would create art and that would be for consumption of the community. How about we turn that around a little bit and make it community art, that an artist can come in and they can envision a community-based art piece and the community can actually participate in building that piece of art and thereby they feel a little bit more a part of that space, have a little bit more ownership, have a little bit more stewardship uh, responsibility that's upon them. So all these little things don't necessarily cost too much more, but then again, are rethinking how we spend our money and retooling it a little bit to spend it better. Yeah, exactly, rethinking. And it's, this is, brings me back to the, the episode that we recorded last time, how to create uh, great public spaces. It's about letting people create the story and not force them to be part of a story that maybe they don't want to be. Exactly. Asking them what story, what type of story would they want to have? Do they want to play a role in creating that story? Because all of that creates a more engaged um, group of civil society, like just more engaged users um, who would then not, you know, not throw garbage everywhere. They will feel like they're responsible. They feel like it's their park, their public space. And that feeling of attachment, it bears fruit in all sorts of ways. Yes. And I'm, I'm so happy, Nidhi, too, that we recorded this episode because always every time I talk to you I get so much inspired and I'm listening to, to every episode we record and writing down the different points because they're so valuable again thank you so much for your time of course I'm glad I'm glad do we want to talk about the value of the gender equal city of course of course <laughs> <laughs> not gonna leave any questions behind um, because I think there's so many people who think and learn and understand in in dollars and cents and other currencies um, yeah and like imagine there is a 50%, close to 50% of the world population is not yet participating in, in their life, in their cities at full capacity. Imagine what happens when we fill that gap. Imagine what happens when half of the world's population participates more in the social, economic, and psychological well-being of their cities, their families, their, their world. Um, and Fast Company actually wrote a piece in January um, about the, the gender pay gap and what it could do for the American economy. And only looking at one aspect of that inequity, women being paid less than men for the same type of work, if you close that gap, it could add $512 billion to the GDP in America. That was one aspect. So wow. I just I want to leave people with that imagination, like, what if? women could perform um, and 50% of the world's population lived their full and best life. What would that do for, for the economy? What would that do for the social and psychological health? It's just, I have goosebumps. It'll be exciting. I, yes, yes, I can, uh, I can see it also on your face. Uh, but Nidhi, many of the land owners thinking that how do we generate money by including women in the planning and design process and so on. So what is your reflection about this? Usually people look at the next few months, okay, do we have money? Do we have dollars? If yes, so that's a good thing. If no, no, skip it. I think I would take the same approach as things that we already have to do. So a landowner, if they're designing a residential building, they're already des designing that residential building. They're already planning to build it. If you build it better, 
Like if you build it to suit the needs of both women um, and men and other genders equally, the reality is that women are going to want to stay in those buildings. And more and more women are getting financially empowered. Women are, are regaining, relearning their voice in decision, family decision-making. And if women can put their weight behind buying those buildings, occupying those buildings, there's a customer base there. So just in terms of you know, the, the transaction of a landowner and somebody who's occupying that space, women are increasingly, they have a voice in that. And if you can, they're a customer, if you can appease them, if you can actually respond to their needs, um, then they're going to want to stay too, and they will become loyal customers. So that's just how we have to look at it too. In terms of like public spaces, if public spaces are being created for occupancy by members of the community, women are voting with their voice too. Like, especially I could talk about public spaces in India. If we don't feel comfortable, we're not in those public spaces and then we leave. And if there is a, um, a, a vendor there that, you know, a, um, a shop that is selling women's goods or clothing and, um, and makeup accessories, whatever women want to buy, if women are not in those public spaces adjacent to that shopping space, then that shopping space is losing revenue. So women are participants in the economy, participants in the consumption. And if we don't think about them, then we're losing customer base. So that's like in simple terms yeah. of transaction, we are the customers too, just as much as anybody else. So if you don't look, think about our needs, too bad. <laughs> yes. So yeah, there are not only social values, but also economical and also ecological. From Absolutely. what you see going around in the world, do you see our, we are moving to in creating a more gender equal cities or are we still at the same point? I think we're slowly getting there. I'm optimistic. We're, we're getting there. It is um, definitely a... Um, a topic of advocacy and conversation, which is why we're here. You know, if, if we were already in a place where our cities were working as they needed to be working, um, then we won't need to have this conversation. That'll be a great day, right? We would have achieved our missions and of win. Course, yeah. um, but we're still, we are talking about this. There are con conversations still happening. We're still learning. Some societies and cultures are much more advanced in this than others. I'm not going to name names because there are lots of things to be considered under that. Um, but, you know, the, the religion that I grew up learning, you know, women were badass goddesses, defeating evil, leading armies. You know, we, we had that role. And somehow in interpreting that religion and living that life on a daily basis in our society, that power, we lost that power. It was either taken away from us or it just went away. It, that power is gone and we need to regain it. So we're all in a different place where that dynamic is, but we're not there yet. We definitely have more work to do, but we are making progress. We ha we're having this conversation. More people are going to hear about what I have to say, what you have to say before we have this conversation. So we're, we're making progress, but we're, yes. we have a long way to go. Yes, hopefully. And uh, we have to. This is non, it's not a question of should we or not. It's, it's something we have to. Yeah, 50% of the world's population. I'll keep coming back to that. 50% yes, of the yes, world's yes. consumers, 50% 50, 50 of the world's lives. It's not, it's not just a social imperative. It's, it's a psychological, it's an economic uh, imperative as well. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we recorded this episode because I got so many requests from different countries, especially from Sweden, that wanted Nidhi to, to be guest one more time and talk especially about the gender equal city. So, so flattered. I'm, I'm so flattered. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm super happy again that uh, you share your experience and knowledge with us and inspiring us toward more gender equal city. Thank you so much, Nidhi. I'm happy to do it. So, Nidhi, what is the next step for you? 
Um, I am building a skill set in social innovation and strategy to really empower um, the nonprofit, philanthropic, and social entrepreneurship sector. You know, we we need the sector to get much more creative in how we make impact, and we need the sector to get much better at making impact so that we can make that impact faster. I'm, I'm feeling that, especially as we're living through COVID. Um, this is where we started the conversation, Masifa, that social justice advocates could have predicted that more vulnerable populations and poorer communities would be hit much, much harder by a pandemic. And here is the reality. So I want to get to a place where I'm working with people in the, in, in the impact economy and giving them the tools to, make, to be able to make change and make impact faster because you know we, we just have to. There's no way we can go back. Um, and also, I don't see myself yet leaving um, working in, you know, in city systems and the, and the city economy because cities are just so fascinating to me and I have so much to learn. I have so many cities to yet visit. So you know, in the future, you can still find me in the, in the social impact sector, just getting much better at it and hopefully still being able to work um, in cities. That's, that's where I'm going. Yeah, and I love that uh, energy when you talk about how much you love city and how much you want to change for the better future. I do, I do, and uh, you know the the social causes and movements that I identify with. You know, being a feminist in the city and gender equal cities and cities for children, young girls, um, and uh, cities that don't demonize our, our social, cultural, racial uh, identities, but actually benefit from that and create a more equal society. There's just so much still left to do. We can do. Yes, yes. we can. Yes, yes, we can. Nidhi, how would you like to summarize our conversation and your reflection and three takeaway message for all the listeners that listening to you in one more episode in Urban Secret Podcast? Sure. Um, message number one, every voice matters. Never think that you are not a strong enough force or a strong enough voice or your opinions are not valid. Whatever you're feeling is important, it's valid, needs to be said, and every voice matters at different levels. It's important for all of us with whatever power we have to keep doing what we're doing. Second, humans are constantly evolving and adopt, adapting to the world that we live in, and so are our cities. Change is possible, change is happening, it will continue to happen, so never think that we've gotten to the end of something. Cities change, and that's just the very nature. And third, um, you know, I keep hearing this more and more, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. We're living through a crisis. We have to utilize it to grow into our powers, to center our values, take a breath, and then go fight some more. Let's use this moment as something that empowers the advocacy, that fuels the advocacy, and not something that defeats us. Yes. Thank you so much for the three powerful takeaway messages, Nidhi. Of course. Happy to do it. And now the three hashtags. Women-led cities, a friend of mine started kind of this movement, um, and I want to support her. Shout out to Katrina Johnson Zimmerman again. Her um, initiative called Women-Led Cities is, is a good hashtag to follow and promote. Cities for kids, that's, that's something I'm um, exploring on my own, especially with, with a gender lens. So, you know, thinking about young girls um, in um, disadvantaged communities and how can we empower them. So cities for kids and then gender equity. Those would be my three. Yes, I love the three hashtags. Again, thank you so much, Nidhi, for everything. You're very welcome. Thank you for giving me the platform again, Mustafa. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And uh, please take care and hopefully... Keep in touch and see you in the next topic. Absolutely. I'd be happy to talk to you again. Thank you so much.
And thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. Please follow Instagram account and subscribe the YouTube channel if you want to see more live talks. If you have any great story that makes our city smarter and more livable, please contact me. I am Mustafa Sharif. Keep up the good work. Keep loving cities.